like for the rest of you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 9. And uh, your study guide is very important today. For one thing, I, I cannot go over every single passage of Scripture that's listed there. So I want to be sure that you pick one up and you can go home and uh, do some more study and reading of those passages. And also you'll find in this week's questions some very challenging and reflective type questions. And I would encourage you to, uh, to really think about those and make them a part of your uh, Bible study devotional life this week. Um, for those of you who are grammar police, I don't know how it happened, but there are several grammatical errors in the questions. I guess I was tired Friday when I wrote them. So if uh, you're of that uh, ilk, I read it this morning and I thought, did I say that? Well, well, must have been half asleep. But anyway, uh, read the questions and uh, gain the benefit and give some thought to it. Last week, we were in Romans chapter 9 talking about Jacob and Esau and God's choices in setting apart developing, protecting, leading his covenant people, Israel. How God chose Jacob to be the one to carry on that covenant relationship between Abram and Isaac, and now Jacob, and ultimately the rest of Jacob's sons who became the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. And we're looking in these chapters, 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, to understand Paul's explanation of the sovereignty of God in the unfolding of salvation's plan and what is the future of the nation of Israel. And he is explaining historically how God has worked to accomplish his purposes by way of helping us understand God's future and past with Israel. This morning we're going to be looking at Pharaoh. And as we come into these verses that deal with Pharaoh, they are often misunderstood, uh, frequently misapplied, and cause many Christians more than a little consternation about what in the world is this business about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and preparing vessels of wrath uh, to demonstrate his wrath. And what is that all about? I'd like you to follow along with me as I read, and then we're going to consider the passage together. Beginning in verse 14 of Romans 9. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? 
Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. The Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabbath had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Now as we look at these verses, some of them have been badly misapplied and certainly misaligned for many Christians. One of them I want to highlight for you before we actually get into the outline is verse 16, which says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Some Christians have adopted what I would call a Christian fatalism. It's almost like Christian deism. And uh, if you're familiar with the deist back in the uh, 18th century and uh, 17th century, the basic premise was that there was a God, but he kind of wound up the world like a clock and set it in motion, and then he went on a trip. (laughs) And we're kind of on our own while the clock winds down. And he has no particular involvement in our lives other than to determine the fate of the whole project. And that kind of fatalistic attitude says, well, there's nothing I can do about anything. What is to be will be, and I'm just going to have to endure it and get through it somehow. That is not what Paul is saying in verse 16. What Paul is saying in verse 16, and the best understanding of the language is, in the course of redemptive history and God's plan of salvation... It is not up to us to determine whether it happens or not. It's not up to the man who wills or runs. In other words, God has not made himself beholden to human beings to make sure we live up to our end of the bargain. But God has determined that certain things in his grace and mercy are going to take place. And I take you back and remind you of the covenant that God made with Abraham when the sacrifices were lined up and God caused a trance to fall on Abraham so that when it came time to execute the covenant, to sign on the dotted line by walking through the sacrifice, that God caused Abraham to be unable to do so in the state of a trance. But God himself walked through it alone, signifying... I will be responsible to keep this covenant myself. Not you. I will take this responsibility on myself. I will bear that. 
so that it wasn't really up to Abraham <laughs> whether or not the covenant was fulfilled. God said, I'm going to fulfill it. I'm going to make sure that this plan stays on track. And that's what he's saying in these, this verse. It is not a dependent on us who will or run <coughs> that the church be established. It's not dependent on us that the Gospels be spread to all the nations. Now, when I say us, I'm speaking of you and me individually. If you drop out of the program, it's not going to, to hinder God's plan. Because God will have people who will carry out the program. God will accomplish His purposes. You know, it, it's not up to you whether or not he, he can bring His purposes to pass or not. Uh, your willingness or your ability to work. It's not up to you. It's up to God. Because if you don't want to, he has people who will. And he will get his work accomplished. And that's, in essence, the meaning of this particular text. Now, there are a couple of things that, again, I want to say about background to understanding Pharaoh. Because if you miss these broad strokes of Christian doctrine, you're going to get really hung up on the details when you get to a chapter like this. And one of the things that we need to understand is that God is the healer-redeemer. I said that a couple of weeks ago. The devil is the destroyer. And Satan's objective is to destroy the human race and every single person of it. That's the devil's work. God's work is to heal and redeem. And so we need to understand that today the only reason why anyone is still living and breathing and going on with life is because God is being merciful and gracious to sinners in his suffering, in his long-suffering patience. Why is it that Adam and Eve did not drop dead the day they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? God said to them, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Why didn't they just fall down dead at the foot of the tree, rot and go back to the ground and be the end of the whole human race? Forgiveness had part of it, but they didn't even know they needed forgiveness yet. Mercy. Mercy was the very beginning of it. In other words, they did die spiritually. By the way, you notice how I keep going back to Genesis? If you don't think those first three chapters of the Bible are like way important, that's where, that's where everything hinges. You take that away and you have no Bible left. None of the rest of it makes sense. We have to go back to what really happened in Genesis for the rest of it to, to connect. And in the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died spiritually, and they would have died physically. But God sustained them. God gave them another breath. In fact, he gave them a lot more breaths. He gave them life. He allowed them to grow food to eat, even though it was difficult, outside the gates. They had children. The human race was started. Why? Because God was gracious. The devil intended to stop it all. It's been his plan from the beginning to destroy the work of God. And when he persuaded Adam and Eve to engage in rebellion against God, 
He set them against God who sustains them. And it's been his plan ever since to bring us down. We need to recognize that we live in hostile territory. You know, if, if I say to you this morning, the devil is out to get you. He's out to destroy you. You say, Paul, that sounds pretty paranoid to me. Well, let me explain it this way. If you were to go in the streets of McHenry with a flak jacket on and an Uzi tucked under your arm, that would be paranoid. But if you were to walk down the streets of Baghdad as a U.S. Marine in a flak jacket with an Uzi tucked under your arm, that's good sense. Because you're a combatant in hostile territory. That's not paranoid. That's intelligent. If you're here with an Uzi in a flak jacket, you're paranoid. If you're there, you're smart. It has to do with the reality of the situation. Satan is out to destroy the church. He's out to destroy you. He's out to destroy the human race. That's not paranoia. That's what the Bible says. For your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Do you think there's a lion in the streets? You're right. There is. And he's got your name on his head, in his brain. He's out for you. And God is the one who holds him back. God is the one who sustains. God is the one who keeps people going when they ought to stop. He's the one who gives his reign to the just and the unjust. He's the one that causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. Because God is full of mercy and goodness. So we need to recognize the bad guy is the devil. God is the healer, redeemer, who sustains us out of mercy. Now, the second thing that we need to get down in general terms is God does not owe anyone anything. I realize this is not very popular in our current culture. I mean, we, we have kind of remanufactured God as purely a God of total love, but love in our vocabulary, I'm speaking of the church and the culture in the United States, is sort of a sappy, sentimental, gushy kind of oozing generosity to everybody. And that's not an accurate picture of God's love. And it's not an accurate picture of God either to say that his only characteristic is love. I believe it is his chief characteristic. If you wanted to isolate an attribute of God and you had to say which one, which one is front and center, God tells us himself, God is love. That, that is my overriding attribute. However, he is a holy God. He is a just God. He is a, a God of justice and of wrath. And we need to recognize that when people have sinned against this holy God and have put themselves in rebellion to him, that he owes us nothing. Our just 
desert is to die and spend eternity in hell separated from him. Every human being deserves that. And we don't even deserve to live long enough to know any difference. We have sinned from the beginning. We have been against God from the earliest ability to exert our own will. We manifest it in rebellion. I want to do it myself. We think it's real cute when little kids start saying that. Me do it, mommy. <laughs> it's real cute. Well, it's the seed of a tree that's going to go that way the rest of their lives. I want to do it my way. I want to do it myself. I want to do it in my strength. I want to do it by my own power. It's there in every human heart. And God doesn't owe sinners a thing. You know, is that hard to hear? It's, it's the way it is. We need to, to recognize that. He sustains us by his mercy. He sustains us by his mercy. He is long-suffering, the Bible says, not willing that any should perish. He tells us why he waits to send his son and end this whole sordid mess. He's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. He waits on every human heart. He yearns for us to turn to God. So he sustains. He gives life. He always promises to accompany the proclamation of his message with the power of his spirit. Go into all the world. Teach everyone all the things that I have commanded you and I will be with you always until the end of the age. And I will give you my spirit and when he comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth, God has promised to accompany the proclamation of the gospel because he loves people and longs for them to come to know the truth. His individual election, we've seen this in Romans chapter 8, his individual election to salvation is based upon his foreknowledge. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that election, based upon his foreknowledge, is what he sees as he looks through human history and, and sees the response as he opens our eyes, uncovers the blindness of our heart, awakens us to the truth of Jesus Christ. All the work is his. But in that moment of decision, when the opportunity is offered to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He knows what you're going to choose. And his election is based upon his in infinite knowledge of that choice because he knows everything. And by the way, he knows who will reject him. He knows who will stubbornly resist and if he chooses to withdraw his grace from someone whom he knows will be a defiant rebel to the end of his days, no matter how much grace he's given, God is just in doing that. 
As Proverbs 29.1 says, He who stiffens his neck, having been often reproved, will suddenly be cut off without remedy. That's pretty definitive, folks. Now, I want to hasten to say here that for us who know Jesus Christ, God has already settled the question. We already have a covenant relationship with a God who says, I, will, I have loved you, and I will love you, and nothing can separate you from my love. I will discipline every son, every child I receive. I will train you, but I will not leave you or forsake you. I am with you. I will care for you, and I will bring you safely to my heavenly kingdom. Paul says, I know and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed against that day. You know, I know I forget things from week to week, but I am deliberately repeating these verses. If you heard it last week, I know I said it last week and the week before. God wants us to know certain things. What can separate us from the love of God? Absolutely nothing. He is in a covenant relationship with you, his child, and he alone also went to Calvary, shed the blood, paid the price to uphold the covenant. So you don't have to worry as a believer and a child of God about sinning away your grace. God is going to deal with you, and he's going to sanctify you, and he's going to pursue you as his child. You will not be on that side of his wrath. Praise God. Jesus has already taken my punishment. But it is possible. It is possible in God's intimate knowledge of every human being for someone outside of Jesus Christ to sin away their grace by stubbornly and persistently refusing and resisting all efforts Until one day he that stiffens his neck, having been often reproved, shall suddenly be cut off without remedy. You say, how do I know when that occurs? How do I know when to stop praying for people? Well, don't worry about it. If you have a burden to pray, God's not done. Just keep praying. That's not your problem. But you need to understand that the potential exists. And God knows who those people will be. Now, I tried to think of a way to explain this in practical terms, and I thought of an analogy. So, so can you go with me here for a little bit in, into an analogy that's, that's just made up, but it kind of happens. Why God does not owe anyone anything, but why oftentimes we think he does. Suppose you have a friend, and your friend is not exactly blessed with... Uh, the characteristic of industriousness, which is another way of saying he's a little on the lazy side. And you have this friend uh, who gets into a jam and comes to you and says, could I borrow 50 bucks? I'm really in a, in a mess here and I could really use $50. Could you lend me $50? And you say, okay, I'll do that. So you, so you lend it to him. And you think, well, he's my friend and I care for him and Well, he never pays you back, but you didn't expect that. (laughs) And then a little while later, he's back again. Yeah, I'm having a tough time. Could could I borrow $50? No mention of the earlier 50, you know, but he needs another 50. Okay. 
And this continues to happen. Now, you're not naive. Well, maybe you are, but <laughs> probably you're not. But you love your friend, and even though he thinks you're a soft touch and a pushover, what's really going on is you're hoping that one day he'll kind of wake up to responsibility. And, and you'd like to help him out until that day comes. And so he keeps showing up. After a while, you can just count on him. Saturday or Sunday, he shows up, you know, drops in for a visit, and on the way out the door, by the way, can I borrow 50 bucks? And now it's happening on a weekly basis. And you keep giving it to him. Some of you are already shaking your head saying, man, I wouldn't. What an idiot. <laughs> Why would you keep doing that? And this goes on for a couple of years. And he's gotten used to it now. He's got an extra 50 bucks every week. And then one day he shows up in a new car. And you say, wow, how'd you get the new car? He says, well, I... I got a loan. You got a loan? Yeah. He says, you know, I put down what I made and whatever, and you know, you've been giving me 50 bucks a week. I put that down as extra income that you know, I have coming in. And he says, now I got this car, and, and I'm, I got a loan. I'm making payments. And you're thinking, he didn't get it. <laughs> he, he's making payments on my $50. Now, at this point in the story, let's just stop and let me ask you, what, how would you characterize this person at this point? Okay, he's greedy. There, there's a word I'm looking for that begins with a P. R. E. Presumptuous. He's presumptuous. He's assuming He's presuming. He's taking advantage of you. He borrowed money <laughs> on your $50 and bought a car. Like you're going to keep this up. Well, you decide enough's enough. You're not giving him $50 anymore. He's not getting it. And so you stop. Can I ask you a question? Are you wrong for stopping? Have you done anything bad? What do you think he thinks? Does he think you're wrong? Oh, yeah. Is he upset? I've been getting this for years. What's wrong with you? $50 a week. Every, I bought a car on this basis. And you won't give, it, give me my money anymore. My money. What, what do you mean your money? He's upset. And all you did was cut off the flow of mercy and grace. Because grace, among other things, is unmerited favor. Now, you know what? You and I hear that story and we think, boy, that was really dumb to keep giving that money all those years. And that guy was pretty presumptuous and arrogant to keep taking it. And now he's banking on it. 
Can I tell you something? We do this every day of our lives. And lost people do it without a clue. That every day they get a fresh supply of air. They get the ability to work. They get sunshine and rain. They receive blessing every day of their lives from a God who owes them nothing in hopes that they'll wake up, as the scripture says, the goodness of God leads you to repentance, in hopes that they'll wake up to the God who loves them and sustains them when they don't care a thing in the world about him. And then when he has the audacity to back off and withhold something, we think somehow our rights have been violated and God isn't doing his job. He owes us nothing. We owe him everything. We don't have a right to what we get. We receive mercy and grace on a daily basis. And so does the man outside of Jesus Christ. And we need to recognize that when God steps back and shuts off the flow of grace, he has done nothing wrong because we didn't deserve it to begin with. So having said that, I really am going to take a few minutes to tell you about Egypt and Pharaoh. Notice that the first part I just said is two-thirds of the outline, and we're about three-fourths done. But let me tell you about Pharaoh, because Pharaoh's an interesting guy who plays into this story of redemption. Remember Joseph um, went down to Egypt, not by, by his will, but by a series of events that landed him down there, and he ended up also by a series of events that God sort of orchestrated, being second in command to Pharaoh and saved his family. And ultimately, Jacob and all the brothers moved to Egypt and lived in the land of Goshen during the time of famine. And they were very blessed. And the Pharaohs respected Joseph and they respected his family. And it was great going for a while. And Joseph's brothers and sisters began to marry and multiply and have bigger families. And pretty soon, they had become quite a quite a multitude over there in Goshen. And then the Bible says that the dynasty of the Pharaohs changed. And a Pharaoh came to power who did not remember Joseph and didn't uh, have a history of these uh, Hebrew people that were over here. And the other thing that we need to recognize is that many times in these cultures, the kings, the Pharaohs, the emperors, were kind of recognized as being divine. That's not too unusual. We've seen that within the last century. The, the emperor of Japan in World War II was considered divine, ruled by divine right and power. The emperor of China and, and uh, other areas where kings have been recognized as having some sort of divine right to be who they were. And they kind of get treated that way. And you know, after a while, they start to believe it. And Pharaoh was one of these guys. He had forgotten all about the background of Joseph. He would forgotten all about the history of Israel. 
This Pharaoh didn't know anything in the background, but he looked at these people and he says, man, we've got slave labor galore over there in Goshen. Let's take advantage of it. <clears throat> and so it's this backdrop, this Pharaoh who thinks he's a god, utilizing as slave labor all of these people that he considers inferior to the Egyptians. And in Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, Pharaoh has his own set of gods. There's the God of the Nile, the God of the frogs, and the God of the flies. You know, when Satan comes up with ideas for God, they're always pretty yucky. I mean, you look at the, you look at the, the statues and the stone gods of the past, and they're really kind of frightening and hideous and ugly and... And, and reptilian and all that kind of stuff, you know. And the Egyptians had all these gods, you know, but Pharaoh was the, the king over all of it. They worshipped the Nile, they worshipped the frogs, they worshipped the flies, they worshipped all kind of stuff. <clears throat> and so Moses and, and Aaron show up and say, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, besides I will not let Israel go. Who is this God of the, of the Hebrews? What are you talking about? I don't know him. Ah, but Pharaoh, you're about to get acquainted. You're going to meet him really soon. And so what happens at this point in time is, Pharaoh says, I'm not doing this. And so Moses and Aaron come back and say, okay, God's going to deal with you. And he's going to bring these plagues. And each plague was actually an attack on one of the gods of Egypt. It's like God is just dismantling them one by one. And every time there comes an attack, a plague, Pharaoh gets his magicians together and says, can you do this? Oh yeah, we can do this. Okay, well, if you can do it, then our gods are still powerful. And every time it says, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Finally, God says, Pharaoh, I know your heart. I know your attitude. And I'm stepping back. Now I want to say something very clearly here. God cannot sin, God does not sin, and he cannot be touched with iniquity. So there is no way, biblically, you can say God causes a man to be sinful. God never does that. But what you can say is that God withdraws his grace from a sinful man and lets him be what he will be on his own. And as Pharaoh resisted God, God began to withdraw his grace from a hard-hearted man that he became more hardened and more resistant <clears throat> because a time of judgment had come. Here we are back to Proverbs 29.1. These people had hardened their hearts. The Pharaohs under Joseph and, and successors had a respect for the God of Israel. They even acknowledged the God of Israel and recognized him. And even if they didn't come to full conversion, they had an appreciation. This guy had none. He was back to worshiping pagan idols. He was back to worshiping creatures. They were back to worshiping the Nile. God who gave the water in that fertile crescent of the Nile 
uh, River Delta and all the blessings of Egypt that came from the hand of Almighty God who gives His rain and sun on the unjust. They were worshiping the creatures rather than the Creator. With an with a arrogant, hardened attitude. And God says to Pharaoh, you're going to resist me? It's time for judgment. I'm backing off and you can have at it. I will show you my power. And as the thing progresses, we get over to Exodus chapter 9. And we'll read these couple of verses, Exodus 9, 14 to 16. For this time I will send my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so you will know there's no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, God says, I've been sustaining you by my grace. And if I had ever put my hand to you, you'd already be gone. You're only here today because of my mercy. I've given you more time. And you're still not getting it. In verse 16, But indeed, for this cause I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and proclaim my name throughout all the earth. God says to Pharaoh, I will use you in my plan for my glory to deliver my people. You can be evil and hard and arrogant all you want, but I will use you for my ends. And we need to make no mistake about this. God will never be thwarted and he will never lose. And Satan can inspire and instigate all kinds of things and it will always turn out for God's ultimate purposes and glory. I don't know if the devil's going to figure this out before the final judgment. But if he doesn't, it's going to be an amazing day for those of us who are redeemed to be with the Lord on the last day of judgment, safe and secure under the blood of Jesus Christ. And all the, all the uh, unsaved people of human history have been judged, and the, the angels and demons of the enemy have been judged, and Satan is now the last one to stand before the bar of justice. And he will have realized at that moment that everything he planned to oppose God and to bring down God's people, God turned around on his head for his own purposes. Who do you think inspired Hitler to attempt to annihilate the Jewish race? Who do you think put that thought in his mind? ever that was a satanic plot. And you know what happened as a result of that? We just recognized it a week or so ago. As a consequence of Hitler's efforts in the 1930s and 40s to annihilate the Jewish people, what did they say? We need a place to call home. We need a place we can defend. We need our own country. And in 1948, the nation of Israel was founded and defined. And how does that fit into God's plan? Because God says, I will call you from the ends of the earth. I will bring you back together to this land. And when they came back together, they spoke Russian and German and, and Polish and French and whatever else. And they said, how can we talk to each other? 
why don't we all learn to speak Hebrew again? An amazing thing. Who in human history has ever, after 2,000 years, recovered a culture, recovered a language, and recovered a border? And why is this happening? Because God is not finished with Israel. God has a plan. And even though Satan instigated Hitler to wipe them out, instigated Pharaoh to wipe them out, it only ultimately plays into the purposes of God to accomplish his will. He will win. And in Pharaoh's case, this wicked king who resisted God, God hardened his heart. God stepped back from him. God let him go his way. God withdrew his grace so that Pharaoh would continue to pursue a course that would bring the judgment of God ultimately upon a people who had rebelled against God in open defiance and deliver the Israelites whom God had promised in his covenant with Abraham to bring back to the land of Canaan in order that ultimately all the nations of the world would be blessed. We need to learn from these verses. God knows the character of every human heart. Pharaoh's arrogance was satanic-like. I'm going to be like the Most High. I'm going to ascend to the throne. I'll show the God of Israel. Well, it didn't work out that way. We need to realize that God's plans will never be thwarted. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Friends, we have a relationship with a covenant-keeping God. We have a relationship with a God who has promised to build his church, who has promised to bring us safely to his heavenly kingdom, who has promised that he will bring people of every tribe and tongue and nation, who will redeem some out of all the earth to praise his name. And in the end, make no mistake, God will be glorified. God does not take delight in the punishment of the wicked. He doesn't take delight in the rebellion of Pharaoh. But he will deal with it because he's a holy God. And he will bring to justice in his due time. And when he is finished, he will be glorified by all that happens. The righteous will be to the praise of his grace and his mercy and his kindness, and his goodness, and forgiveness, and redemption. And those who stubbornly resist throughout their lives will bring glory to his justice, and wrath, and judgment, and holiness. And God will be praised, and the devil loses, and God wins in the end. And I'm thankful this morning that I'm on the winning team. I've read the end of the book. I know how the story goes. I've read Revelation, and we win in the end. And no one will oppose God successfully. Father, I thank you for your word to us. And I thank you that in your providence, if you allow wicked men to rise up, and if you choose to create the opportunity for them, in your sovereignty. It is only because you intend to bless your people.
and to bring about your work. And we thank you that though the devil oppose the church and you, he will not win. He is already a defeated foe. And we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us. And we give you praise for that, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.